0: Welcome to Sky Team's People First with Morag Barrett. So my guest this week is Deborah Grayson-Riegel, Regal, is a keynote speaker and consultant who teaches leadership communication for Wharton Business School and Columbia Business School. She's a regular contributor to Harvard Business Review, Psychology Today, Forbes, and Fast Company. And she is the author of this fabulous book that we're going to be talking about, Overcoming Overthinking, certainly one of my Achilles heels, (laughs) and I have many, 36 Ways to Tame Anxiety for Work, School and Life. She consults and speaks for clients including Amazon, BlackRock, Kraft, PepsiCo and others, and her work has been featured in worldwide media including Bloomberg, Oprah Magazine
1: and the New York Times. So, Deborah, welcome to People First. Thank you so much for having me. I always feel a little bit like my mom wrote that bio and sent it ahead. (laughs) I know what you mean. I sometimes listen to mine, and
0: even though I've crafted it and refined it, I think, well, wow, who is that person? Yeah, I feel exhausted just listening to it.
1: (laughs) Yes, yes, I understand.
0: Well, mine finishes with a little known fact, which was that I'm actually a ballroom dancer, or I oh, used to be when you were allowed six up close within six foot of strangers and
1: dancing. Yes. Yes. Um, what is your hidden talent? My hidden talent is improv. So I'm a Ooh. founding member of, or was a founding member of the university of Michigan's improv comedy troupe called highly improvable. And uh, I thought I was going to be a comedian an improvisational comedian. And I, it has probably been the best training that I've had for my work as a speaker and a coach is having a talent in yes anding things.
0: Oh, well, we will pull on that today. Great. And building on that then, Deborah, I want to take you back to the origin story pre-University of Michigan. Yes. When you were a wee lass and you were thinking about what it was going to be like to adult
1: and when you were a grown-up, what did you want to, what did you want to be when you grew up? I wanted to be a splinter and paper cut doctor. So very specific specialty, right? Which I would imagine would fall into dermatology now, but I wanted to be a splinter and paper cut doctor because those were two injuries that were disproportionately painful for their size. And Mm. I felt like when I would get splinters and I would get paper cuts, people would comment on the size, right? Oh, that little thing, but it caused a huge amount of pain, and I figured that I could be the one to do honor to the yes. amount of pain caused by these little injuries. Well, there are children all over the planet who are going, yes, please, because I can right. now a flashback to
0: sitting next to my dad with my arm through the crook of his, and he's literally got it like in a
1: vice-like grip <laughs> mm-hmm. with the needle trying to dig that splinter <laughs> That's out. Right. That's right. That's right. So that was and it's so funny. I, I believe that if you called either of my parents and said, yeah. what did she want to be when she grew up? They would say she wanted to be a splinter and paper cut doctor. I wasn't I wasn't shy about it. I don't I didn't understand why that didn't already exist. I love yeah. that. I wonder if it re- requires an extra few years of study and, you know, Support. To actually yes, it probably paper. does. And now I'm realizing, as I'm looking down at my desk, I'm realizing that I'm about to have aged out of that oh. specialty. So I'm glad I picked something else because I cannot see splinters or paper cuts. And oh, hello. Yes, oh, I cannot. Glass. See glasses on. Yes. yes, I cannot see splinters or paper cuts anymore. So I'm glad I picked uh, a job that has a longer lifespan for my eyes and for the rest of me. Okay, so
0: what was the pivot point? How do you go from being a splinter and paper, uh, paper cut doctor aspiration to a uh, speaker and a lecturer and an expert in anxiety and communication, etc.? Yes.
1: So uh, there were a couple of, a few different pivot points. So definitely wanted to go to med school. Uh, that was really my plan. My, uh, I went to a sci, a specialized science high school here in New York city where I grew up. So definitely had a background in science, but my extracurricular activity in high school was competitive speech and debate. So wow. this little speaker part of me, while I had this mind for science was developing at the same time. And I spent every single day day after school, learning the art and science of presenting. I spent every weekend traveling around North America, competing in speech competitions. I spent every summer at speech camp, which my kids have told me is the lamest thing they've ever heard. And I should not say that out loud if I want to have friends, but it all paid off. My senior year of high school, I won the national championship uh, in a category called original oratory, which is speak writing and speech delivery and ended up getting hired at age 17 to come to colleges and corporations and teach people how to speak Mm -hmm. so that was happening and then i went i went to college Mm -hmm. and in college i was on a pre-med path and then i hit dum-dum-dum organic Chem, which is said to separate the doctors from the psychologists. I was not willing to give up my fun, which of course now included improvisational comedy, to really buckle down and do organic chem. So I ended up majoring in psychology and still had this after graduating with a degree in psychology, graduating, uh, coming back to New York and going to Columbia and getting a master's in social work where I thought I would be a a therapist because I couldn't hack organic chem. I still had this speaker track and performance track that I was still on. And ultimately what happened was my improvisational comedy troupe, the six of us sat down after performing together for seven years and said, look, the entertainment industry is hard. Are we really committed to this? And four people said yes, and they're all still in the entertainment industry. And two of us said no. And the other person is a doctor because he could hack mm-hmm. organic chem. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm a speaker, coach, and consultant. Oh, my goodness. Well, the
0: passion just come on, comes through. So tell me about the inspiration behind
1: overcoming overthinking. Yes. So I am somebody who was uh, diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder As a preteen, so having anxiety, overthinking things was always uh, a part of my life. And it was something that my parents don't struggle with, or at least didn't openly struggle with. So my anxiety felt strange for them, right? And so they Mm -hmm. were very well meeting, but would certainly say things like, well, you know, don't worry unless there's something to worry about, which makes sense logically. But when you're in it, can't get you out of it. So I had anxiety. It was always something that I assumed I would live with, struggle with, would be the background music of my life. And then I had a child. Mm -hmm. I had two children, actually two children within two minutes. That's my other skill. I had twins. And uh, my daughter, Sophie, ended up getting diagnosed with four anxiety disorders from the time that she was a preteen to a teen. So generalized anxiety disorder, uh, obsessive compulsive disorder, trichotillomania, which is a compulsive hair pulling disorder and panic disorder. Wow! And when she was in high school, she realized that there was no book out there Four teens struggling with anxiety written by a teen. So she wrote a book called Mm -hmm. Don't Tell Me to Relax, One Teen's Journey to Survive Anxiety and How You Can Too. And her book inspired me to check back in on my own mental health and realized I wasn't letting her suffer with mental illness. I was getting her help. She helped me see that I could take better care of myself. And so with a combination of therapy and prescription medication, I got my stuff handled. So generalized anxiety, obsessive compulsive disorder, and a tick disorder in my neck. And after her book came out, we decided that many of the strategies that she was talking about when she would be out there as a speaker were (laughs) strategies she had learned from me which I didn't realize and was proud of. And so we decided to co-write this book together, Overcoming Overthinking, which is a combination of 36 of our top strategies for helping people manage anxiety. I love this because as you say, you've co-authored it with your daughter. It's a family business. It's a family
0: business, yes. And so what has been the reaction? Because that takes courage even today to acknowledge hey, I've been diagnosed with this and here's how I'm managing it and here's what you can expect. So what was the reaction of people as they read the book and then... Realize you were sharing your
1: personal journeys. Yeah. So I actually think it's mostly been the other way around, is that people have been exposed to our personal journeys on social media and then picked up the book. So it didn't, right, it sort of didn't come as a surprise for people. Many, I would imagine that our first concentric circle of readers were people who already knew us. And I would say almost everybody knew that Sophie had mental illness because she'd written a book about it, but me talking about my mental illness was a surprise for many people. It was things that I hinted around on social media, but now I was really coming out about it. And people's reaction was surprise Mm -hmm. and then appreciation for the vulnerability of our story, gratitude for our Strategies, none of which are any version of get over it. None, right? Yeah. And then wanting to share their stories with us, I would say 95% of them privately and 5% of them publicly, and we hold no judgment around that. We are just happy that people know they've they've got some folks who are willing to listen to them and understand.
0: Okay. Well I love the way that the book is structured and as you say there's there's 30, 36 strategies within there and it starts with a, an inward reflection and a focus on what well, you call it challenge your thinking. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about some of the strategies and and guidance that uh, a reader's
1: going to find in that first section of the book? Yeah. So that's where we want to start, right? So anxiety starts with our thinking, even though it often feels like it's, you know, sort of starting in our body. So one of the things that we're really clear about, and we, we have done, as you can imagine, in the last six months, more webinars on the topic of anxiety and resilience and stress than any other time we could have imagined. And the place that we start is to uh, understand that you're Uh, thinking drives your feelings and your feelings Mm -hmm. drive your behaviors and your behaviors then drive your thinking. Mm -hmm. And we're very careful to talk about the word drive rather than decide. It can feel like it's deciding, but part of what we want to let people know is it doesn't have to decide, right? Your thinking doesn't have to decide your feelings and your feelings don't have to decide your behaviors. If you're willing to take a step back, and recognize what's going on. So really a very first strategy is to know that cycle, that thoughts mm-hmm. drive feelings, which drive behaviors, which then drive your thoughts and that the your thoughts, the, the way that you think, the mindsets that you hold, the perspectives that you lean into are one of the very few things that we have a choice about that mm-hmm. are within our control. And we are also very careful to say that we recognize for people who've experienced, you know, capital T trauma, it probably isn't a choice and it probably isn't within their control. And we're also clear that we are not mental health professionals, but to just let people know that for the majority of us, that's a choice we can make. And at a time like now where it feels so disempowering, there are so few things that are happening Mm -hmm. in our lives that we're choosing, you can choose your thoughts. Uh,
0: What I liked was the synergies with the emotional intelligence training that and workshops and programs that my team and I have created. Mm. We also talk about that feel, think, do loop and how it can happen in a nanosecond through um, either lack of awareness or just because that's evolution, it's the fight and flight response. Mm -hmm. But as you've said, in that moment, as we feel our hackles rise or our blood pressure um, and heart rate going up or the sweaty palms that I get, even if I just think about going into a a tall building and standing, you know, near the window, you can make a
1: choice in that moment and plan and prepare for it so that you have options. Absolutely. 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 And, and, you know, one of the simplest activities that we share with people is to ask them to explore a thought (laughs) that goes like, I get to dot, dot, dot. Mm -hmm. And a thought that says, I have to, and that thought tends to drive two very different feelings, right? Say more about that. Yeah. So when you think to yourself, Ooh, I get to, right? I get to have dinner with my family tonight, right? I get to get on a plane and take a trip. Uh, I get to, I get to do those things. The feelings that typically come from a thought labeled I get to is uh excitement, right? Intrigue, curiosity, all those sorts of things. When you just change one word, right? I have to, or even I should, all of a sudden, changing a word or two, which changes the thought, all of a sudden we feel obligated, resentful, yeah. burdened. And so it is such a simple little tweak between I, I get to and I have to that it immediately shows people how much changing a thought can change a feeling. It gives back an element of control. And the other
0: strategy that really resonated for me was the asking a question and being curious. So if I am feeling nervous, yeah. it's the, ooh, I didn't know I was going to be nervous. Why am I feeling nervous? Yes. Now it gives me options and choices versus it's just because I'm in a tall building and it's going to fall down and I'm going to die.
1: Um, yes, that is and, not actually the case. Right. And and we actually make a point, and I think this comes from my coaching background, that if you can replace a why question with a what question, you are likely to experience yourself as more self-compassionate, right? So why am I feeling anxious would be the kind of thing that somebody who thinks I shouldn't feel anxious would ask me, right? Why are you feeling anxious? Get over it, which is none of the strategies, as opposed to I'm feeling anxious. What's that about? What was I thinking before I felt anxious? How would I like to feel? How could I get there? And leaving out the word why, which makes me feel criticized, even if it's by me. I love that. You've just given me a twofer, a
0: twofer. Because obviously in the coaching of not using why on myself, and maybe that's the British upbringing, but using what, what's causing me to feel stress? What's causing this reaction? What else could I do? Yes. To your point, it changes that tone. I don't hear my mother quite so much. in my yes. (laughs)
1: Got it, got it. Well, my mother's probably going to watch this, so I I will only say glowing things about her. All right, well, hi, Deborah's mom.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Hi, mom. So, all right. So we've looked at our own thinking. We've looked at the patterns that we've, uh, we've created over the years that we've been on this planet. We've created some options by asking what questions mm-hmm. or other questions, not just why questions, avoid those. So how do we go about unlearning and relearning, creating those
1: new strategies? I love the, the question that talks about unlearning right because that is the very first step that we need to take is to to unlearn some strategies or some lack of strategies that we had and i think for many of us whether we are helping ourselves manage our overthinking or we're helping other people manage their overthinking you know a str- some of the strategies that we have to unlearn are Telling ourselves to get over it, telling other people to get over it, telling people to look on the bright side, minimizing how they're feeling—you uh, know, any of those, any of those kinds of things—are denying somebody's reality. My anxiety is as real to me as this computer, right? As this light, as these headphones. It is that real to me. And so a strategy that we can use for ourselves is to acknowledge and to give it credit and give it extra credit for trying to do something good to us. When we feel anxious, overwhelmed, afraid, any of those sorts of things, we judge it harshly. And so the first place that I like to look is with gratitude. What are you trying to make clear to me? anxiety, hey, overthinking, what are you trying to call my attention to that you're concerned I might miss Mm -hmm. or avoid or minimize? And so when I can look at my anxiety first through the perspective of what would you like me to know? What would you like me to see? What are you drawing my attention to? It minimizes my feelings of guilt and shame, increases my feelings of Mm self-compassion. And then my anxiety lets me, as if it were a teenager, my anxiety lets me then shift it because I have met it where it is as trying to do something that feels helpful. Now let's look at some other ways in which I could handle something.
0: So this sounds like your strategy around naming it to taming it. Yeah. So that once you've named the elephant or named it, it then promotes that curiosity inside and outside. As to your point, sometimes this anxiety is very valid
1: in that it's giving us a warning of impending disaster. Absolutely. Well, that's the biological origin of it, right? The yeah. biological origin. And when you look at, you know, when you look at an emotional intelligence list of emotions, and this is part of what's in the book is a, is a big list of emotions, you will notice that the categories of emotions are largely negative emotions even Mm. though negative emotions certainly serve a function right um so but that being said it's from a it's from a biological perspective it was helpful to be scared if an animal was going to come and attack you. It was helpful to be disgusted so that you didn't eat poison or sleep with a blood relative, right? Those things were very helpful to us. And so name it to tame it is, is one of those strategies. We did definitely didn't come up with it. I know that uh, the Yale center for emotional intelligence talks about it uh, as do others as well. But the idea is that if you can name your emotion, you actually take some of the heat out of it. And and Daniel Goleman, who wrote the book on emotional intelligence, he didn't invent it, but he wrote the book called Mm -hmm. Emotional Intelligence. He says that only about a third of us can accurately name our emotions and we don't have a very rich vocabulary. And so we want people to have that. And we lump them all together. We find when we're doing our
0: emotional intelligence workshops, we have an opening activity where we get people naming them. And once people are warmed up, we'll fill the flip chart. Um, but it tends to be the intense relationships. And to your mm-hmm. point, there's a spectrum. So everybody remembers angry. Yes. But the question is, am I angry? Am I frustrated or am I niffed?
1: Yes. Ooh, uh, they're
0: miffed, we'll have to add that to the textbooks. but it depends because if I always respond with the high heat index of I am livid, mm-hmm. see, another word. Yeah, versus no, I'm just slightly miffed then I'm gonna over respond and cause unintended consequences with relationships and others.
1: Absolutely, and, and naming it accurately is so helpful, not just to manage our anxiety, but as you certainly know, to have healthy, honest, open relationships. I, one of the things that, that I, I often find is an emotional replacement, a word replacement, mm-hmm. is when people say, um, I'm confused that, Right. You know, I don't understand why she gets to come in late and leave early. I'm confused why he got a raise and I didn't. You don't mean confused. You mean angry. Right. Mm -hmm. I'm angry that I didn't get that promotion. Mm -hmm. Right. I'm frustrated that she comes in late and leaves early. So we have certain words that are more socially acceptable to use. Like, no, I, I don't understand why I'm confused that rather than say I'm frustrated, I'm sad, I'm hurt. And then we muffle the real message. And I like the fact that you called on
0: negative emotions and made the point that the emotion in of itself isn't good or bad. It yes. just is. It's the behaviour it triggers that causes the issues. Yes. My favourite way of telling leaders mm. to learn about emotional intelligence. I'll let you into the secret. Okay. Go and watch Disney Pixar's Inside Out. Oh breathtaking breathtaking isn't it because yeah spoiler it's a fabulous movie for those of you watching this video go watch it but it focuses on five core emotions but the reality is you can't have joy without sadness yeah you can't have um excitement without nervousness you know as you start to look at all the spectrums they're all there
1: for a reason it's yin and yang within the emotional spectrum And, and I'll just say that one of my favorite uh, expressions comes from Dr. Suvin, Susan David, who you may uh, know, <laughs> on, you know writer and, and expert on emotional intelligence. And she says that when you're experiencing one of those negative emotions that you should ask yourself, what the funk? right? Because you're really asking yourself, what is the function of this emotion? Let's assume that this emotion, I hope you heard my N in there, right? You should assume that this emotion, like every other emotion is serving a function. Emotions are data or data, depending on where you live. Go get it. Go get it. it.
0: Okay. So the third section of the book is the one that's especially close to my heart because it's all around connection and connecting with others. So, Again, how is this important? Why is this important when we're dealing with anxiety and overthinking? Yeah, so
1: I will say that I uh, probably suggested this section of the book for me because when I am feeling overwhelmed, like I'm overthinking anxious, I isolate. And because I'm a Mm. speaker, I'm gregarious, I'm outgoing, people are very surprised to know that I will not reach out. I don't want to talk on the phone to anyone. I just want to be by myself. And for me, as much as it feels like the right thing, it tends to exacerbate the problem for me. Mm -hmm. And so reaching out to at least one other, let's call it living being, because we have a a chapter in there that says your person doesn't have to be a person. So we have a It is our dog, right? It is very often our dog, right? So just reaching out to some other living being to remind you that you're not alone, to remind you that this is time limited, or to remind you that if it doesn't feel time limited and you are feeling alone, that there is help you can go get feels foundationally important especially right now when isolation loneliness depression anxiety are what are is being called the secondary pandemic. So a good friend of mine Howard Prager has a book coming out called Make Someone's Day mm. and as
0: I was reading through it your strategy number 32 is all about do something meaningful
1: for someone else. Yes. Yes. So how does that connect and help me? Yeah. Well, you feel good, right? You get a rush of endorphins and serotonin and all those good feel good chemicals when you do something good for another person. And it could be very direct, like picking up groceries for somebody. It could be making a a donation to the, the campaign of your choice. But doing something that gets you outside of yourself and has an impact for other people feels really good. And and I can share with you that when my kids came home, so my daughter Sophie and her twin brother Jacob came home in March for spring break and never went back to college until just a couple of weeks ago. And when Sophie and I were home, we were, you know, we're both highly driven and our work had sort of disappeared for us in March and April. And so we committed to making a series of YouTube videos of the 36 tips. So every single day, whether we felt like it or not, we made a short video of each of the tips to be of service to others. It wasn't in service of us. It was, we believe that somebody out there needs this. We don't know who, we don't know when, we just trust that we can be of service. And so we did. I
0: love that. And that connects with the concept that I write about in Cultivate, um, the ally mindset, because it's all about how can we help each other to be successful? And I noticed in the book, it made me laugh when I got to this chapter, you've got a double barreled here um, strategy, which is the sit in the shit friend. Yes. Pull me out of the poop friend. Yes. Thank you. Tell us more about these two characters.
1: I don't know if we have to put like an adult language warning on this or, you know, I'm in New York. Mark, that's just how you oh, order your coffee yeah. in a deli, right? So so a sit-in-the-shit friend, and my daughter Sophie will be so happy because this is her favorite because it was it gave her permission to curse in front of her, her mother. Mm-hmm. So a sit-in-the-shit friend is the friend that you can rely on that when you are down in the dumps and feeling overwhelmed and anxious will say to you, oh, that does suck. Oh, I can't believe you're going through that. That's the worst Tell me more, oh, mm-hmm. that's somebody who's willing to be in it with you. The pull me out of the poop friend is most of our friends, right, so a mm-hmm. sit in the shit friend is a very special kind of friend. A pull out of the poop friend is what most of our friends are known for and can do, and this is the person who says to you, come on, you got this you can do this Uh, let's see if we can connect you to some resources who can we call how can we help here's an article that i read so it's the person to pull you out of the mess that you're in or the discomfort that you're you're feeling and we know from experience that most people are excellent at pulling people out of the poop they are less good at sitting in the shit and number one That's lack of practice. Number two, lack of modeling. And number three is other people, if you are caring and empathetic in any way, other people's hard emotions feel hard for you. Mm -hmm. Right. And so when I see somebody that I care about suffering, that hurts me. And so I want to get them out of it because that means I don't have to be in it also. Oh, my goodness, I love it. And that, it just reminds me of that short video
0: vignette you've probably seen from Brene Brown, who just writes mm-hmm. so eloquently around all of these topics. But she has, the so yeah, that's right, me mm-hmm. too. I am one of her groupies also. But it, she talks about the difference between empathy and sympathy. And the mm-hmm. other risk we can have is, oh, Deborah, you know, you think that sucks. Let me tell you about my time, which sucks even more. And now we're just getting into a competition of suckiness, which right. is not what needed. Sometimes we just have
1: to sit and smell. Yes, and it stinks. A lot of life stinks, right? And for somebody to acknowledge it, to validate it and to be willing to hear it with you and for you is an incredible gift.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, this is an incredible gift, your book here. Definitely, I recommend everybody to grab a copy of it. How has it influenced your thinking and approach to anxiety and just stressful situations in general?
1: I, I'm going to answer that just in terms of the time that we're in now. And I, I'm sure that this podcast will be evergreen, but I don't think too many of us will forget the great pandemic or the awful <laughs> pandemic right, yeah. of 2020. And so I, I, there's something that feels very timely to me about it, because when we published the book in October, talking about anxiety was still something where people would come up to us after we'd given a presentation and say... I have anxiety too. Right. And be very private about it. Now it is a given. It is expected that people are overwhelmed, overworked, overthinking, and people are not only talking Mm -hmm. about it, they want strategies. Mm -hmm. And so there's something about having had a book where we experienced what felt like stigma associated with it, people weren't talking about it, to just a few months later, people are hungry for it, and it's what everybody's talking about, feels like a really uh, meaningful arc. Uh, I couldn't agree more. I know for myself,
0: I liken it to it's not an emotional roller coaster, it's more like an emotional washing machine. Yes. And some days I've experienced all of them and it felt like all at the same time and so these strategies that you outline here even if you're listening and thinking well that's not me toughen up you know stiff upper lip I, I promise you your breaking point or your stress level you are going to reach it because we're all human you yes. may have a higher tolerance but these tactics are going to be applicable and they're applicable every single day. So Deborah, thank you you. so much for sharing your journey here today. What final words do you have for people who are listening and watching?
1: You're not alone. Dealing with anxiety says absolutely nothing about your character, your competence, or your future. It means that you are a human feeling as well as a human being. Don't suffer and don't suffer alone.
0: Thank you. So if I know I need help, if I'm curious to learn more, if I want to bring you in to talk to our teams about stress, anxiety in the year of the great
1: pandemic and beyond, unfortunately, how do people get a hold of you? So best way is to find me on my website, which is uh, Deborah Grayson Regal. So follow the spelling that you see here. Uh, Regal.com is a great way to reach me. You can certainly find me on LinkedIn. Uh, but don't confuse me with my two sisters-in-law. One is Deborah Regal, and one is Deborah Grayson. I am not joking. <laughs> so make sure you look for me. I'm the one in the purple jacket on my LinkedIn profile. And I would say that if you really do need help, uh, before you come to my website, if you're feeling like you really do need help, please find out Mental Health Hotline, call your doctor, Call a friend. Call uh, NAMI, the uh, National Alliance on Mental Illness. Uh, get help before you call me if you're feeling like you are uh, really in in danger of hurting yourself or someone else.
0: Deborah, thank you. I'll make sure all of that information is in the show notes. Right. I wish you and your family and all of your aliases, yes, uh, and yeah, you know, doppelgangers. That's right. Name ongoing health and success. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for joining Morag today. If you enjoyed the show, please like and subscribe so you don't miss a thing. If you learned something worth sharing, share it. Cultivate your relationships today when you don't need anything before you need something. Be sure to follow Sky Team and Morag on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you have any ideas about topics we should tackle, interviews we should do, or if you yourself would like to be on the show, drop us a line at infoskyteam.com. That's S K Y E team.com. Thanks again for joining us today. And remember business is personal and relationships matter. We are your allies.